The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Greg Huber is a Georgia registered professional landscape architect. He earned a bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Georgia College of Environment and Design. His experiences include landscape architecture, site planning, landscape construction and management, irrigation, nursery field production, retail nursery sales, and technical instruction. He joined the Georgia Center for Urban Agriculture based on the University of Georgia Griffin campus in 2016. He administers the Georgia Certified Landscape Professional and the Georgia Certified Plant Professional programs. Georgia's landscape and turf industries count on Huber's communication of critical and timely information and announcements through the Landscape Alerts and Updates newsletter, Georgia Certified Landscape Professional newsletter, and the Georgia Certified Plant Professional newsletter. Greg is the recipient of the Georgia Green Industry Association Communicator of the Year Award in 2019, the Educator of the Year Award in 2015, and the Southern Crescent Technical College Rick Perkins Award for Excellence in Technical Education in 2012. Episode 9 of the Garden Question Podcast, Successful Landscape Renovations with Greg Huber following this. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question Podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Greg, how do you start a garden or landscape renovation? The conversation with the client is always the most important thing. And I think as much communication as you can have with the client and put your eyes on the site. You know, I feel like to do a really quality job on a landscape design, you need to have an understanding of how that client interacts with their surroundings. Do they enjoy sitting out on the patio and drinking coffee? Do they have grandchildren or or children that enjoy playing in the yard? And if they do, uh, what sports do they play? Do they need an area that's a particular size? Are there any particular plants maybe that they enjoy? And, and maybe the client has moved from another state and they may have favorite plants that don't do so well in the southeast. Or maybe they're moving north from a more tropical setting and they want a tropical feel to the landscape. You're going to have to be creative with your plant palette in that case. You know, have an understanding of, of the perspective and the context of your client, what they're looking for. The difference between a rubber stamp landscape plan and maybe a landscape plan that's really tailored to the customer. The most successful designs I've had were those that had good client interaction. And, uh, and sometimes your clients, you may have multiple clients. Maybe it's a husband and a wife both interested in renovating a landscape, but they both have different ideas or a vision. And that's always, you know, where you can come in as a professional to help them find the common ground and maybe incorporate features that they both enjoy. And sometimes just listening to what their goals are. Maybe the husband says, oh, well, I don't want a lot of flowers because that's going to be high maintenance and I don't want to pull weeds. And uh, the wife says, I don't want uh, wall-to-wall turf. We want to try to find that balance of uh, 
manageable landscape that they both can enjoy. That may include even some planters or some areas that would create less maintenance in some cases. What's your next step? thing I would look at are the large features of the landscape that are immovable or major elements. So that could be large trees, could be buildings, historic elements, rocks, boulders, anything like that. I look for the permanent features in the landscape first and then work to the smaller elements. I always look for exceptional trees as well. You know, there's a big difference between 36 inch diameter southern red oak versus large sweet gum. You know, if it's a valuable tree species that can live for several hundred years years, that's always, in my mind, gains more points than some fast growing or pines or things like that that can be replaced. Established your communication with your client and you've looked at the large elements in the landscape, I start looking for onto the maybe the shrub layer. I look for drainage issues as well. Uh, you want to look at soils and, and there's, there's clues. Something else you should always do in a landscape plan is take photographs. There's always an element that either you overlooked or you missed or maybe something comes up later. In the worst case, scenario, maybe something is damaged in the construction phase or is suspect to be damaged. And it could be something that you didn't actually cause. So by having those before and after photos, you can clarify what was in place before you began. Three types of photographs I like to take. First is your big picture. Stand in the middle of the site and just take photographs looking outward in all directions. Then go around the perimeter of the site looking inward and take all of those photographs. Now, you're not trying to take award-winning pictures in this case. You're just documenting documenting what's there from different perspectives. I always try to include elements that you can reference. If you just take a photograph of a tree in the middle of a lawn area, that's not really giving you a reference. But if you can stand, say, at the mailbox and point the camera towards the front door and capture that tree, or maybe you're square in front of the center of the house, at least you can reference where that tree was later on rather than, well, there's a tree there, but I have no idea exactly where it was positioned in the lawn. You need to have some kind of reference point. So the first are the, the big picture around the perimeter looking in and from the center looking out. And then the next shots I take are detail shots. Where does the phone line go into the side of the house? Where's the water line? Where's the power line connection? If you see junction boxes, maybe there's an existing irrigation system. How close are the shrubs to the side of the house? You know, just little detail. Where are the windows? Where are the doors? Just as many detail photos as you can get, especially things like utilities are helpful. You can even spot utilities. You may spot utilities uh, just by looking at the the condition of the lawn where you may have a sunken trench or the grass is slightly greener in a particular line. Those are all clues you want to document and again, try to get some reference points in your photo. And then the third type of photograph I would recommend, I call the money shots. Looking at a site, you're going to start to have ideas or maybe it's a particular uh, design goals of the client. You know that a certain area is going to look amazing when you're finished. So get that money shot with the before picture and the after picture. There are some apps out there you can download that are really handy for the money shots. What they do is take an image and then later it will pop up a ghost of that same image. You can almost line up perfectly the next shot. So it almost looks like time lapse uh, where you can have one and then the other. And I've been experimenting with this with pruning where I'll prune up a shrub and I'll take a photograph. The software I've been experimenting with is called Time Shutter and Time S-H-U-T-T-E-R. And uh, that has worked pretty well uh, for those kinds 
kind of photograph. So you've got your client interview, you've established some of the goals, you've looked at the site, you've looked at soils, you've looked at drainage issues. There's a couple of different types that you may run into. One is, of course, uh, where you have abrasion and erosion taking place. And I mean, usually pretty obvious, you'll have ruts and you know the soils being moved off the site from turbulent flow. Your approach to that might be different than drainage issues where you just have a low area that naturally holds more water. And so the soils are more saturated. And in that case, your solution may be resolved with plant material that can tolerate wet feet. Whereas if it's abrasion from rapidly moving water through your site, you may have to slow that water down. You may have to spread it out in a wider swale so that that abrasion is not so concentrated and establish a ground cover. And turf grass is a great ground cover uh, if you have a sunny situation. If it's full shade, you got a whole different ball game there. You can use berm swales and try to spread that water out a little bit and even get some of it to infiltrate as long as you're not adjacent to the foundation. The last thing, you know, now that you've collected your information, you want to definitely check your ordinances, your setbacks. You may have a landscape ordinance in your community. There may be homeowner association uh, requirements that you'll need to meet. So don't just jump right into design once you make your site observation. You've got your photographs, your notes from the client. You've made site observations, even looking at uh, solar orientation. You know, where where's the shade? What time of day were you visiting? And this is where photographs come in helpful too, because they're timestamp. I think some of the better designs I've done are sites that I'm most familiar with too. Just the little details of things like, you know, where the sunlight may be hitting just in that morning. So when the homeowner may be headed out the door with their cup of coffee and you have that first light hits the lawn and they're pulling out of the driveway and they have this illuminated planting bed that makes their day, you know, before they get started. So those little things can make a difference. And same in the evening, you know, where does the sunlight hit in the evening? Place some key elements in those positions. Wind is not so much a factor in the southeastern United States as it might be in colder climate. You can plan to buffer wind. Typically, it's coming in from the northwest. We get these eastern high pressures, and so we get northeast wind coming from the northeast. In the summertime, often our breezes are coming from the gulf from the south. Keep that in mind when you're laying out your outdoor spaces. You want to make those comfortable. The eastern side of a house tends to be year-round comfort because sunlight in the morning before it's too hot, and then you have shade in the afternoon when it starts to heat up. Even in the wintertime, early morning sunlight feels good on the south side of a home. Something to consider in the south. That's where the sunlight's going to be the most hot and direct. Having either a porch area or a shade structure or an arbor or something to provide some relief in the summer is nice. If you plant it well, you can use deciduous plants or tree colonnades and things, uh, tree groupings, that in the winter, when you want the warmth and the heat gain, the leaves are gone and you get that sun coming in the windows, but in the summer, that's protected and shaded. Uh, Just little things to think about before you even hit the drawing board. Something else that I like to look at, and I didn't mention this in my site photos, is you'll capture this when you're taking your photos from inside out, is look at what's around, what's the context of your landscape. I know everybody wants to, you know, an independent sort of identity with with things and they get special cases for their cell phone and and dress in a certain style and i guess when it comes to landscapes maybe that holds true as well but um, i like to think of it as a community and this is a piece of a larger picture so make sure you think about the context of what's around i like to repeat uh, maybe some of the plants that are especially big evergreens you can repeat a couple of those in your landscape that are maybe in the surrounding it sort of pulls things together and, and gives some harmony what is the process that you use for 
balancing out, say, like a man-made element versus a, a nature element? That's a great question, and I'm glad you brought that up. I did a study recently for my thesis project. It was on pollinator spaces, and we wanted to look at public pollinator spaces and, and see what, what tended to be the most widely accepted for home landscapes or for public spaces. And there are studies that were done before my study that pointed to this as well. Joan Nassauer of uh, University of Michigan did some studies. The key thing is cues to human care. We can look at a landscape that's completely pristine, and that is a thing of beauty. And I personally, that's my favorite. When you really look at the planet overall, it's hard to go somewhere and not see any signs of human elements. When it comes to a landscape, what we found in the study was the most favored landscapes had a lot of signs of human care. It was also a turnoff for some people. So, for example, we had one site that we looked at, and it was a survey where you chose which landscape you preferred. The site that was the most popular had a bench and a lamppost and a paved walkway and a manicured lawn and different plantings and some sculptural elements. While that was the most popular, there was a skew towards the negative. So some people really didn't like that. It was a little bit of a turnoff to some. On the flip side of that, we showed a landscape that was very wild, very minimal signs of any human care. And it was the least favored landscape, consisted of a paved walkway, narrow mowed strip on the side of it, and a post and chain board. And that was it. There were some trees in the background and it was just kind of a wild meadow type thing. It was the least favorite. At the same time, there were some who really liked it. So, you you know, you kind of get these skewed perspectives on both of those extremes. The sites that were consistently liked by most people throughout the seasons, winter and summer, had a balance. It would be the ones that comes to mind that we call it the middle level. It was a, a meadow adjacent to a subdivision. It had the post and chain border. It had a, a very nice mode perimeter, maybe a 10-foot mode strip. It had benches, places to sit, and there was a little bit of artwork, some sculptural elements in there, and some enhanced plantings along the border. Things that were a little more flashy than what was out in the meadow were planted along that mode strip. And it was one of the most maybe second most favored, but it was consistently favored across the season. So I think it accomplished what you want to think about in your landscapes is that balance of human elements and human touch and nature. There's a lot of ways you can accomplish that. Of course, the, the built features. I think that well-placed wall or a structural element makes a huge difference in a landscape. There's a lot of psychology and there's even just visual arts. And when you draw a line through something, it can act as a, an element that pulls things together the common thread, so to speak. Think of well-placed lines and shapes and things that we kind of subconsciously recognize help to tie things together. That holds true in planting design too. You've basically got the tamed area and then the wild area and you're connecting people back to nature. Would that be a good way to look at it? Yeah, I think so. I think of a cottage garden where you have very complex intermingling plantings and flowers on top of flowers and just almost wild and woolly type of plants. Think about how those are contained in a cottage garden with a very formal borders, maybe even a geometric uh, rectilinear formal type of layout with wild and woolly plantings within. So it's kind of like nature, but it's not so out of control that you feel unsafe or threatened or feel like you're, you need to get out there and pull some weeds or something. Each individual has a different preference for that. If you've ever been up to a really biodiverse area up in the Appalachians, 
Sosby Cove is like a hot spot for biodiversity up in the Appalachians. And it's just plants on top of plants of all different species. And pretty incredible if you appreciate the number of species in such a small, concentrated area. But to some, a walk on that trail might feel like there's a snake around every corner and biters are going to fall in your hair. And there's a, certainly a range of what we're comfortable with. There's something to be said for that joining of nature and the human environment. And, and that's what we study in landscape architecture is that balance of how can we respect the natural systems of drainage and, and wildlife and uh, native plants and things that we want to integrate with those things. And so we have a the human environment is trying to join with the natural environment. We're trying to come up with something that's har- harmonious. The trend now in just architecture in general, there's it seems to be a, a modern movement or what I would consider boring and, and really not sustainable type landscapes. And the best way to illustrate it is you see with these modern architectures, architectural buildings, you see the modern landscape. And to me, it's nothing more than uh, the best way to describe it would maybe be like a chessboard. And every other square, you've stuck a pond. And that pond could be be a, uh, a river birch or just some odd plant. Then they mulch it with slate rock. I think we're really missing out on connecting back with nature in those type of landscapes. What are your thoughts? I agree. Some of the modern designs, I enjoy the from a design standpoint, but I think from a biodiversity and missing opportunity to create interest and kind of merge man-made landscape with the natural elements, I think we are missing it. Uh, what I think that, you know, looking ahead, we have not explored this to a very large degree. The, when we build a subdivision, we go in there, we strip off all the vegetation wall to wall. And I understand that sometimes the mass grading requires that and it's may or may not be something we can avoid. But uh, when possible, I definitely think we should be avoiding that. But even if we do strip this thing wall to wall, we go back in and we put turf wall to wall, which I'm not against turf. I love turf and I use turf and designs all the time. It's a very important part of the landscape. And then we tend to cut out these little islands around the house or you know, in the middle of the yard and we plant a couple of trees here and there. I really think we should plan the spaces we're going to use in the landscape carefully and almost create a border that outside of that border, we allow it to become a more natural area or at least a less managed area. And, you know, I know that's not widely practiced, you know, even in lots where you have maybe a forested area that comes up into the, the lawn, you know, we tend to spray the entire forest with Roundup, kill the entire ground layer and just keep it as a almost like a, a tree canopy with a dead ground layer, you know, dead zone. What if we were to take that same forest and create a gateway from maybe a lawn area that we use and, and enjoy and, and flower garden and then have a gateway that goes into the forest and we allow it to have herbaceous plants and a ground layer and shrubs and things and then selectively remove things we don't want in that forest and kind of a little managed forest area. And, you know, if it's visually bothersome to the homeowner, you could even do some creative things with uh, border like screens. So you almost have a separate type of space that where the ground layer is visually hidden unless you walk back through the gateway kind of thing. Uh, that's just a concept in my mind. I like that. I had clients that live on wooded lot in evaluating that. The new growth in the forest edge is so little small plants, bushes, new trees. I've tried to get them to remove those and open that view back into the forest. It would transition it's like you're saying that maybe the turf grass, then you start your plantings into the woods. But even if you didn't do anything, 
And you just took that row of wild vegetation and opened that vista into the forest. To me, that's very relaxing and Mm -hmm. pleasing. And and then you just enhance it even with more natural plantings within that. It's an idea I like. I'm envisioning south-facing a forest edge. What if we limb that up and we plant a border that's, you know, two to three feet high, maybe using some ornamental grasses or something that create kind of a visual barrier to seeing the ground layer out in the forest. So you're really seeing the open forest forest through the canopy or, or sub canopy, but you're not seeing the ground layer necessarily. Your native plants are just going to love that. It is selecting those plants that are going to thrive in that particular environment. You know, native plants bring so much value to our landscapes. Mm-hmm. You know, Callaway Gardens does a pretty good job of handling those border areas. Some of the drives that they have, they'll manage the first 50 feet or so of that from the road side, you know, so they'll mow a strip along the edge. I notice if you go along the road, you go out 30 to 50 feet along that entire drive, planted evergreen shrubs that will often flowering, you know, things like camellias and some understory type of evergreens. You kind of enjoy that first 30 to 50 feet of that roadside border. And then beyond that, you don't really notice it's all very natural beyond that. They use those plants to kind of create maybe a subtle separation between what's completely natural and what's managed. What's some common issues that you see in renovation? One of the things I see often are sloped areas and how to deal with slopes. I see a lot of slopes that are planted with turf, you know, has a good root system and it's very good at stabilizing soil, but it, it can be difficult to manage on a slope, especially if it's a slope that gets beyond something you can mow, basically take care of it with a string trimmer by hand. That can get costly too on your maintenance uh, side of things. On the flip side, I've seen things that that don't use turf, but maybe use like these low growing ground covers like junipers. And they're just as bad because they can't compete with tree seedlings and weeds and things and vines that come up. Now you're hand pulling a huge area, you know, on the slope, trying to manage it. If if it's a slope situation, I like to use uh, ornamental grasses or things that are competitive that will be low maintenance throughout the year and will look nice. And I think even blocks of ornamental grasses look wonderful on a slope because you can appreciate the patterns you can create with groupings of grasses. So you might have a a swath of miscanthus and switchgrass and mully grass and things that kind of create patterns in the slope and then maybe even do some flowering plants up close in the the lower part of the slope and even some larger plants, you know, larger shrubs up on the slope. We, you see Laura petal and planted right up next to houses all the time, but it's a fantastic plant for a background on a slope up towards the high side because they're so competitive. Give them space to grow out there and you almost don't have to prune them. You can use them as a backdrop. That's one area that I see a lot of opportunity is on those slope areas. Lawns, to me, perform best and they look best when they are on fairly level grade. When you have that turf on a slope, you're getting abrasion from those lawnmower wheels and turns and things like that. And the other thing about a flat or a gently sloped lawn is water has a chance to soak into the soil. That's going to give you a healthier lawn. Uh, When you apply fertilizer, it's going to stay in place and not tend to wash away. Uh, Anytime I can, I try to design lawns that are on a very gentle, like 2% slope. And then, you know, 2% slope is a two inch drop over an eight foot stretch. That's a pretty flat area, but that gives you enough slope to drain properly. Another thing I see in renovations, of course, overgrown plantings, you know, maybe this is a home that was landscaped 30, 40, 50 years.
years ago. And I've seen some of the most amazing trees in those landscapes, like saucer magnolias and star magnolias and some of these plant materials that are sort of classic plant materials that have been around a long time and absolutely try to incorporate those and keep those in the landscape. But then things like Burford holly and cleara and things that are 20 feet tall, you know, don't hesitate to take those out. Of course, make sure you know where your utilities are before you rip anything out of the ground. And there are ways to eliminate vegetation without tearing out the root system. You could cut them pretty much flat to the ground and then you can treat that cambium layer around the perimeter. And it may take multiple treatments um, because those those mature plants have a lot of carbohydrate storage in that root system. Going to keep trying to regrow. Don't think you're going to treat it one time and it's not never going to show any regrowth. And the other thing is you get suckering coming off of the roots. Removing vegetation can be a lot of trouble. It's one of those where it's borderline and you're not sure. You can always cut it back to about 16 inches tall if it's a holly. Certain plants don't tolerate a renewal pruning, but cut it back to 16 inch stems and allow it to regrow. And it's going to shoot out a rapid regrowth. You can come in there at about you know 12 inches of regrowth and you can shear those tips and that will force it to branch and you can almost restructure the plant from the ground up. A couple options in there. Overgrown plantings are definitely contend with. You know, I've seen situations where you can limb these plants up called skirting or lifting pruning technique where you open it up and basically make a, a shrub into a, a small tree. Um, and that works in some cases, but when it's up against a home, you know, you want to try to avoid that. Um, not only for it can hold moisture against the house, you can start to get rot. You know, it's a good highway for insects when you've got plants right up against the house. Even mulch, structural entomologists here suggest you having about a one foot separation from the home to the mulch. You know, whether you replace that with stone mulch just for that first foot. Those are some of the things, you know, I see. Well, how about you? What sort of things do you see in the landscape renovation? type of issues. You're hitting right on it. It's always evaluating the plant material that's existing. If it's significant, then keep it if it's in the right location. A lot of times it's just not worth keeping. It's worth starting over if if it's a plant that you want to use or make a better choice. A lot of times the space issue, you're evaluating your new planning against the space that's available. That's something that doesn't happen typically when the initial landscape is put in during the construction process because you've got to have some shrubs in front of the house to close it. Typically, that's the least expensive, fastest growing plant. And then typically just somebody, they call them landscapers, but they're just stuffing plants in the ground so the house can get closed and builders happy and everybody's happy and they got their money and they're gone with no thought of what's happening down the road. What's going to happen in 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road? You've just pointed that out. It's going to be an overgrown landscape in most cases. There's no reason to put a shrub that's going to grow 15 feet if your window's three feet off the ground. You'd want to look for a plant or shrub that is going to grow two to three feet and, and not cover up that window. This is always baffling to me. It's why you're looking at your, say, in a residence, you're looking at the home and, and you've got this great architectural feature of a big cathedral-type window, and you go and plant something right in front of that window. You cover it up with a giant plant, typically a crepe myrtle or a Japanese maple but you, you need to enhance the architectural features mm-hmm. on the house and not cover them up. That's a great point. And I, I see that happening a lot. Yeah. 
You know, something that you hit on there is, is hiding the architectural features. And the other thing that happens that goes along that line is enhancing the features that are undesirable. And I know it's actually the intention is to make the ugly area look better. What ends up happening is you actually draw more attention to the ugly area. Have you noticed that? Yeah. So, for example, driveways. I've seen, well, I have this big, ugly driveway, so I'm going to line both sides of it with flowers, try to make it look better. But what that does is actually draws more attention to the big ugly driveway. I think I would try to distract the attention to something beautiful away from the driveway. Do something sort of muted if you're going to landscape around that driveway so that it softens maybe the edge of the driveway if it's transitioning into a say a lawn area or something. You know, don't line it with flowers because now you're it's almost like a runway effect where you can't help but to look at it. Yeah, and really old school classic uh, monkey grass or Lyria lining a sidewalk or a driveway. An early experience as a child, my dad, that was the landscape we had at our ranch house was we had the, the foundation planning, put the leery open a line all the way across the house. And my summer job, I, I know I, I probably had to be four years old, five years old, but my dad <laughs> had me out there pulling common Bermuda out of that. And, and I would start at one end of the house <laughs> and I would go to the other end of the house pulling all that Bermuda out of the Lirio. By the time I finished, it was all back on the other end. Of course, it'd take me two weeks to do that and I'm very slow and I got distracted <laughs> a lot. But you know, that's the one thing that on, on any of your beds is the your turf grass. You know, you, you need to allow room to say, you know, you're not going to grow in this area on the planted bed. Have a area, whether it's edged mechanically or chemically, that you're not going to invade into that. And that, that would even go more to even your low plane plantings, like any kind of ground cover type plantings that, that you would have in there. This, mm-hmm. Unless you really want that intermingling, you know, you need to allow areas a foot, you know, 18 inches or so that, you know, you're not going to invade this area. Once you get in this area, we're going to eliminate you. That's a great point. Yeah. How do you manage the turf margin or address the turf margin even in landscape design? We could talk on that topic as well. That's one concept that you mentioned to have that zone where you can apply herbicides as needed to keep that margin. You mentioned the leery oak, which actually is a pretty competitive plant against it. But uh, yeah, I know what you mean. I've pulled pulled that Bermuda out of those borders too. What are some other ways we can address the border? I know I've, I've used some cases of retaining wall work as a great border on one side if you have the right situation. Ornamental grasses, probably my favorite border because they're tall and the Bermuda can't compete with them and you can mow right up against them. And if you run into them, it's not going to hurt anything. Several strategies in there that we could apply, couldn't we? Yeah. What I commonly do is I put a V trench and that's basically you're making the soil you're edging Mm -hmm. and you have to recut those V trenches every few years, but then you put your mulch down in the V trench. It's cutting straight down where your turf is three or four inches and then slope back into the bed and then you can neatly touch if it's pine straw tuck that in if it's a hardwood mulch or bark or whatever it would go down into the v trench and it forms a nice crisp line in the landscape tell folks i say if you do nothing else to your landscape but define your beds in this simple method and mulch, it'll make things pop because there's something about that curvilinear line or the straight line. I prefer curvilinear, but that just starts providing some definition. And and you spoke on lines earlier, and they're a very important element in the design process. Mm -hmm. We used to do this exercise when I was teaching landscape design where I would just take the junk drawer and dump it out on the table. And I'd say, I want you to take all these random things in this junk drawer. And, and then they would 
reorganize all those things. So it might be paper clips and erasers and, you know, whatever you pencils and pens and just odds and ends and then organize that into a pattern that looks better. And it usually would entail some kind of a recognizable line. And even sometimes there'd be a, a ball of string or something in the junk drawer. And so they could even stretch that thing and create lines and take some of the paper clips and start putting those together in a grouping. And by the time you reorganize all that stuff, it goes from chaos into something that understandable, something that reads well. And that was a fun exercise. Yeah, that sounds like it would be. The human eye wants some organization to play off of, I think. I think it goes back to that. Mm-hmm. I think we're bombarded with so your eyes are soaking in so much information all the time that it wants to quickly come to a conclusion or an understanding of what it's look what you're looking at. And so having those shapes and lines and things that and I guess that's how those visual tricks that you've seen those before where you look at something at first glance and you don't see it, but then you look at it longer and you start just the pieces start to fill in mm-hmm. i think there's a lot to be said for that in the landscape is that your mind or your mind's eye wants to understand what it's looking at and that's where having some kind of order or theme helps it to sort of process that information and, and feel more comfortable more things you should know about landscape renovation right after this TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. I see people trying to grow turf grass under trees. What is your strategy on that? bottom line with turf grass is there is no such thing as a turf that likes shade. And the key word there is likes shade and plants don't have a mind. So it's, you know, even using the word like, I'm just painting a picture here. Turf grass, it's not conducive to shade. When you think about turf in nature, where does turf come from? You know, it comes from the grasslands of the world, whether that be Africa or the Midwest, that's where we get our turf species from. They're not adapted to growing in the, the shade of a forest floor. And so we get that situation in our landscapes. A couple of things you can do. One is you either need to increase the light to at least five to six hours a day, which could mean limbing up the tree, could be thinning out the canopy a little bit. You don't never want to remove more than a third of the branches in a tree canopy anyway, because then you, your tree will start to decline or it's going to look butchered. So, so one is you can try to thin out the canopy. Two, you can raise the mowing height by, you know, a quarter inch or so in those shade areas. A misconception with turf is well, if I cut it shorter, it's going to get thicker. It is tied somewhat to the height because if you get turf too tall, it starts to flop over and then perched canopy going on. So you want to mow within the recommended mowing range. The key to thickening is small clippings, frequent mowing. The analogy I use is if you let a shrub get really tall, then you cut it all the way to the ground. It's going to have to push out new growth from stored up energy in the root system. If I cut that holly flat to the ground and it regrows using that stored up energy, it might do okay. If I came back the next week and I chopped it flat to the ground again, eventually it's going to start to run out of stored up carbohydrates and it can't tolerate 
tolerate this. Well, the same happens in your turf. If you're going from two inches tall to a half inch tall and then back to two inches tall and then back down to a half inch tall, that turf is struggling already in the shade. And now you're you're basically exhausting the carbohydrate reserves to keep pushing out that new growth. What you want to do is raise your mowing height slightly in the shade compared to your open areas. Make sure you're on a regular mowing pattern. I mean, Bermuda grass in the summertime could stand to be mowed twice a week. Don't remove more than one third of that blade at a time. That way you're leaving two thirds of the plant intact so that it continue growing healthy. But what happens is a homeowner may say, well, I, you know, I need to cut back on the number of mowings I'm having. So let's have my landscape professional come out every other week and just scalp it each each time. And then it'll be a long time before it needs to be cut again. And, and that really puts a strain on your lawn. So the quality is going to go downhill quick when, when you do that kind of thing. So anyway, back to your, your thing about shade, turf in the shade, you can raise the canopy of the trees and try to reduce some of the shade. You can increase the mowing height to make sure when you're cutting, you're only taking off a small amount of grass at a time and not heavy cutting in the shade. And the other thing is to replace it you know, with a ground cover or something that can tolerate the shade. I laugh when you were mentioning the, the Lyriope a while ago. I've used Lyriope and I have a pretty big lot. I've used Lyriope as a border between where the mowing line stops and where the forested areas begin, or at least the shade area under these big oaks that I have. It was before it was just the grass kind of would kind of just grow where it could. And it was like this, there wasn't a real clearly defined line and I've got a two acre lot. So it wasn't feasible for me to cut a V trench around the whole acre and keep up with it. So I just planted a line of, <laughs> of Lirio and it works pretty well. Well, I don't know what to say. I feel like I've, uh, <laughs> I slammed you there when I started talking about really old. No, oh, absolutely not. No, I laugh because I mean, it's, uh, it, 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 I think it was used for a reason and, and I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm old fashioned in that space, but definitely kept the low maintenance thing. I know there's so many more, uh, probably modern approaches, but, uh, and I didn't take offense to it at all. <laughs> I, I actually thought, you know, I know where, where you were coming from when you're talking about pulling weeds out of it. I get, uh, I do get green briar and stuff like that. It pops up in it and it's really hard to get out yeah but what i found works is i'll just take the lawnmower cut the lirio down to about an inch and a half tall and let it regrow fresh growth and that takes out most of the weeds that are mixed in with it i've gotten to the point on my clients when i talk to them about turf grass under trees is you know let's do something that's going to compete but give you that low plane planting and that lirio planted in mass under there seems to be a good answer Mondo grass uh, would be a good answer. And then, then let's don't even attempt the grass under the trees because it's not going to reach its optimum. It's not going to perform like you would like in the full sun. Let's just define where the grass is going to be outside shaded areas. And then let's make these other areas where they're more natural. And it's a great place to blow your leaves. And that way you don't have to burn your leaves. You can recycle the nutrients back mm-hmm. into the soil. So I like that strategy. If you absolutely were trying to keep turf under a tree. Think about North Campus in Athens. You know, there's a, there's a beautiful lawn on the North Campus that's under the shade of a lot of trees is, is you really have to think about species that are most mm-hmm. tolerant of shade. And that would be your tall fescue and your St. Augustine. Now, if you're north of Atlanta, St. Augustine is really not an option. And even Atlanta's pushing it. Macon would be more safe for the northernmost limit for a good, healthy St. Augustine lawn. And it's usually cold that takes care of 
have a St. Augustine lawn if you get really cold winter. Tall fescue is another option. Atlanta and Northward, and you want the best chance of a turf surviving in shade. Just make sure both tall fescue and St. Augustine, uh, you know, the mowing recommended mowing height on both of those is around three inches, three to even three and a half. Don't go out there and plant St. Augustine under a tree and, and mow it at one inch tall and hope it's going to be doing well. Good stuff there on shade. And another thing too, uh, you mentioned replacing it with ground covers, which is a great option. And another option is to go tall. You could create your border or create the line where the turf is going to stop and maintain that edge within that bed. Just mulch with those leaves, as you mentioned. Use some taller plantings, things like oak leaf hydrangea, you know, camellias and things that can tolerate some shade. Belia is another one. Does okay in the shade. Uh, you know, hollies traditionally have done well in the shade, but I can't think of one that I would suggest for planting it under a tree. I think some of these other plants have much nicer qualities to, to offer. Give us some examples of how to organize a workflow on a job site. This is something that often gets overlooked. Lessons learned the hard way. I managed in a, a course when I was a teacher and I had a landscape design and installation course. One of the things that you absolutely should think about that will save you time, we often think about efficiencies as how we can do something quicker and do something more effectively. But one efficiency that you should really stop and think about is how to, to organize your job site. Where will materials be dropped off? Make sure that if they're going to be on site for a few days, there's even a, a way that you need to stack those trees. Uh, if a tree's laying on its side and that bark is facing straight up to the sunshine, it can get scorched and you may not see the damage immediately. It may be a couple of months later you have this entire side of a tree is, has lost its bark and a tree is in decline. You want to point that canopy towards the south. You want to especially put it in shade if you can. Another thing is if you're storing your plant materials in a black plastic container on an asphalt parking lot in the summer, which is a tough time to be planting anyway, but sometimes you have to when you're in the landscape profession. You don't have a choice of schedule oftentimes. So think about the temperature. Jean Williams, who's our plant pathologist at the University of Georgia, she studies plant diseases and she's taking temperature readings on some of those black plastic containers on a, a nursery lot that were 160 degrees Whoa. or something like that. But it, anyway, it's uh, scorching hot. And so sometimes it's not a root disease that's killing these plants. It's the actual temperature in those black plastic pots. Well, often what happens is the plants show up and you're not sure where to put them. So you just unload them at the first place you think of. And then you may not have water. Be very thoughtful about where things will be delivered, where they'll be stored, where there's access to water. And the other thing is, especially if you're doing just a small project, like an enhancement project, where you're not affecting the entire yard, maybe you're adding a bed or taking out some plantings and replacing them. Make sure that you manage, uh, I call it mess prevention. We did a tree installation once on campus and the students planted that tree. I mean, just as perfect as they could from everything we had talked about and everything they had read in the text. And then we watched videos, proper planting or issues that they could run. They planted that tree so perfect, staked it perfectly, mulched it perfectly. But when the job was done and you stepped back, the sidewalks were muddy, the grass was muddy, the skid loader tracks were all over the place where they had dug the hole and carried in the plant. And I said, guys, you know, you did a wonderful job planting the tree, but if I was the owner, I'm not looking at the quality job you did on that tree. I'm looking at my driveway's got skid marks all over it and there's mud everywhere. And those are the details that matter. So from that point on, I really started to think about here we are in 
in a class where we can only meet once a week. Well, that job has to look nice for the other six days until we get back out there. You know, we really started thinking about ways of planning ahead how we were going to do things and get the whole team on board. You know, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to walk here. We're going to place tarps here. This is where the soil is going to go when we dig it out of the hole. It's a common thing, too, is we're ready to plant the plant. So we're going to just jump in there and start digging. Where is that soil going? And if you stop and watch, uh, observe, you know, it may be that that soil is just being flung, which a lot of times it was, you know, dig and fling, dig, fling. You'd have soil scattered around a three foot perimeter of that planting hole. And then when it's time to backfill, you know, you're, you're, you're laughing because you're watching everybody take a rake and try to scavenge up enough soil to backfill with. Things like that. You're not thinking about that when you're planting. You're just gung-ho to get the holes dug and get the things in the ground. And then you realize, oh, wait, I'm going to have to put dirt back in that hole. Mess prevention, planning out the staging areas. You don't want to have to move things more than you have to, especially maybe having truckloads of, of soil amendments and things brought in. It's so easy just to you know dump that soil on the this lawn area right here. What if you put a tarp down first and pour the soil on that tarp? And then when you get down to the bottom of the pile, you just grab the tarp and you can drag it out of the way, lift it up and consolidate the rest of the soil into a pile. And it's easy cleanup versus having to get out there with a leaf blower and try to scatter out the what's left in the turf. And little things like that, I think, make a difference in efficiencies. What are your earliest garden memories? My earliest memories of gardening, just working on Saturday morning, the radio is on, we're out, dad's mowing grass and mom's planting some flowers. I'm out there. I always enjoyed that. I think it was more the enjoyment of the family time being out there together. I, I mean, I miss those times and my parents, I'm thankful that they're still out doing things, but I don't live near them anymore. So it's a, it's a good ride. I'm going to go visit them this weekend, but uh, those are good times, times you miss when you're a kid, you know, being there with your, with your family. What inspired you to go into landscape architecture? He just kind of stumbled into it, actually. I, I was in high school. I was proficient with art and design and, you know, did pretty well in art class. And I was into athletics and running and I was a Boy Scout. And so I, I love the outdoors. You know, so I was trying to think about what that would involve some creativity and is outdoors. I started out as an art major, went to Georgia Southern and I was running on the cross country team and waking up at four o'clock in the morning and we do our morning practice and then I would paint and do graphics during the day for classes and thought, where am I going to go with this? Transferred back home to a junior college to take some core classes and earn a little money while I was at it. Went and took one of those career tests, aptitude tests, and it spit out landscape architecture. I'd never even heard of it. And I started looking into it and found out there's one school in Georgia that offers it. So go dogs on the landscape architecture. And off I went to Athens. And I'm, you talk about a fun program. And, and it really touches on all my interests. We took environmental type classes and ecology and architecture and engineering and planting design and plant identification. Margaret Kepke was one of my favorite professors there. And, and I remember she had us actually go out to some landscapes and then draw a plan of what was there. And that really helped put together what that piece of paper is representing. When you're drawing up something, what's it going to look like in the end? So to work backwards like that was really helpful to draw a plan of an existing landscape because you know what it's going to look like as a result and then you see it on paper. So I thought it was really helpful. Career-wise, you know, my first job in landscape architecture was with Breedlove Land Planning and Conyers and they're still there. And Mike Breedlove, you may know him, 
Mm-hmm. I'll forever be indebted to him on what he taught me. You get your college education, but then you get your real education. You get out in the field and you start doing it. And Mike was always patiently teaching all of us uh, the ropes out there and showed us all about how to calculate drainage and, and site planning considerations. And we did a lot of master planning, school campuses and park. Very, very good company to work with. And I still catch up with some of my colleagues from that job occasionally. But what a what a good experience working for Mike. You moved into teaching. Told us a little about your experiences there, but what's kind of a aha moment when you were teaching? So the way I got into teaching, I had my own business doing consulting, and I was invited to. I guess uh, there's a, a publicly accessible list of landscape architects out there because of the licensure. The college, I guess, looked up the landscape architects in the area and c- contacted me and said, "Would you be interested in teaching a class?" And that's how I got into teaching. But as far as aha moments, I think for me. I was teaching horticulture, which is, it, you know, it overlaps and it's in the same circles as landscape architecture because we do use ornamental plantings in landscape architecture, although that's just one facet of the profession. There's a lot more to it than just landscape plants and engineering and, and planning and site analysis and architectural theory and all that goes into it. When I started teaching, I was teaching horticulture. So I started with landscape design and I continued to teach that and it ended up turning into a full-time position. So I was running a greenhouse before I knew it. You know, I'm thinking, oh, greenhouse, <laughs> automated systems, right? It's got a automated watering system. It's got a automated climate control. I mean, this is going to be a breeze to grow plants in this greenhouse and couldn't be further from the truth. That was definitely an eye opener as far as uh, just the detail work that goes into growing plants in a controlled setting, you know, and that controlled setting creates an environment that can be very conducive to problems. And it helps you to realize just how nature really does have an amazing way of balancing itself out. And when you intervene in that balance, for example, you grow flowering plants in a greenhouse. Well, yeah, the temperature's ideal and the can manage all of those climate variables, temperature and sunlight. And you can put a shade cloth on the greenhouse and you can irrigate when you feel it's needed and give it ideal watering. But what you can't moderate is the pests because they're basically like in a hotel inside the greenhouse and they're enjoying the climate too. And they may not have the predators that would normally keep them in check. You get some explosive situations when it comes to pest management. And I think that really helped me to develop an appreciation and understanding of the nursery industry, what they do. The other thing is I went from a more of a design and install experience in my career to design, install, and maintain. The landscapes we were designing in class and and installing on campus often became part of our management class. So we were going in and pruning and, and weeding. And because you're pulled in uh, a lot of directions as a teacher. You don't have a lot of time to manage the grounds and I didn't have any employees to direct. So I really started thinking about low maintenance type of things and even just small things you can do in a landscape that will reduce maintenance uh, make a big difference. The design really drives that maintenance cost. I read something one time, and it, on a typical site, a person's going to spend more money on maintenance than they do the initial installation. Well, we need to pay a whole lot more attention to design this into a low-maintenance landscape. It, it's no such thing as a no-maintenance landscape. How much maintenance inputs are going to be on this? And it really drives the cost if you don't think about it that way. That's a great point. Yeah, the long-term costs we don't often think about. A little money spent up front um, on a good design is, is worth it every penny. 
I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have a very good evergreen structure and not very many flowering plants. <laughs> not, <laughs> not because I don't enjoy flowering plants, but uh, right. just you know, seasonal change outs and week-to-week maintenance on that. I, I stay pretty busy with uh, certification programs and trainings and uh, I travel a good bit with that. I've had to reduce the flowering plantings in my garden. Do you have a favorite tree? Southern magnolia. To me, it's just such a beautiful plant. It's almost like a giant shrub in a way. To me, they look good all year round. In the wintertime, when I drive in my driveway and I see those big glossy leaves on those magnolias just kind of glistening in the backdrop, brings a smile to my face. If you have the space for one, I would put one in every landscape if the client was open to the idea. What about a favorite shrub? Oak leaf hydrangeas, and they're native, and they're really beautiful color. Uh, but I also like ferns a lot, too, and uh, I know that's not a shrub. Autumn fern is one of my favorites. Camellias I really like. Of course, Japanese maples, just because there's so much variety and just graceful trees. What about a ornamental grass? My top two picks would probably be mully grass, uh, heavy metal, switchgrass. Okay. Those two, I love those two plants. And they look good together, too. They have a lot of contrast. And one's a very fine-textured, low-growing, and the other's uh, taller with a kind of a bluish cast to it. But that's a really great cultivar. It's very upright and dense. And I think there are some new cultivars as well in the switchgrass. But um, both native ornamental grasses are underutilized. They make a great border. So if you don't want to maintain a a lawn edge plant a border of ornamental grasses and just create a nice sweeping line that you can mow up against. I think they're they're great for that. What's your most valuable garden mistake? I always look at mistakes like the only mistake that's not valuable is the one you didn't learn from. So you should always learn from your mistakes and don't be, it's easy to say, you know, nobody wants to fail. So, and I don't like failing either. As far as costly mistakes, I think early on when I started doing consulting work, one of the mistakes I made was someone wanted to negotiate price. I was new at negotiating the price and you really shouldn't be negotiating the price. You really need to negotiate the services of what you're going to do for client's budget. Because if if I need to earn a certain amount of money in order to cover my expenses to do, say, a landscape plan, there's really not a negotiating of, oh, I'll do it for less. It gives the impression that you're charging too much. But really what you were doing is you were just losing money on the job if you went below the price you knew you needed to make ends meet and cover your expenses. You know, you know what your costs are and costs are costs are costs is kind of what I hear people say. And know what it costs for you to do business for one. A lot a lot of times I see companies, the ground running, they get a job and they're basically going to take the cost of plants and double it and say, there's my price. But are you re- is that really your price? Have you thought about insurance? Have you thought about gas? Have you thought about the number of trips you have to make? So you really need to, and from the get-go, it takes time and experience to really understand your expenses. A better solution than negotiating your price is to say, well, we can eliminate the design of this area, or we could just focus on trees and shrubs and eliminate the design for the flower bed, things like that. If the budgeting wasn't able to cover your price, um, you could add or take things away. There's a lot of flexibility in a design. Instead of putting in 15-gallon plants, you might put in three-gallon plants. Or instead of a one-gallon pot, you'd put in a four-inch pot. And what you're really doing is you're changing the time in which the uh, landscape matures. You're just stretching that out farther. But you still have the integrity of the design that you're holding. Mm-hmm. 
and you're you're keeping that integrity. It's all going to work together if you've got a good design and time. It's just you're buying quicker results, knowing that budget. And if it needs to be lowered, then that's a great way to do it. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, you wouldn't want to say, well, we'll plant these same seven gallons for a lesser price, but you could certainly adjust the size of the plant material yeah. or maybe phase in the design and do certain areas uh, in phase one and that kind of thing. Absolutely. That was definitely a, a good learning experience for me, though, and better understand what my cost actually are and then how to adjust the job variables in order to meet the budget. You spoke earlier about travel lot with certifications. Tell us about what you're doing there. The Georgia Certified Landscape Professional and the Georgia Certified Plant Professional are flagship programs of the uh, University of Georgia Center for Urban Agriculture. Um, that's where I'm employed. I came into this position from a horticulture background and teaching, and so I really enjoy what I do. These programs, whether you are a landscape professional or if you are a homeowner, just a little bit about these programs. Uh, if you're from the homeowner side, if you're looking to hire somebody who really has an understanding of their profession, look for those Georgia Certified Landscape Professionals. And there's a finder on our website. It's gclp.info. You can search by name or location in that uh, finder and find yourself a Georgia Certified Landscape Professional. And, and you can be assured that you're getting a hold of somebody who has a very good understanding of the profession. And, and one of the things about these programs is it establishes an industry standard. It's a fairly easy business business to get into is you can buy a lawnmower and a pickup truck and be in business that week, but that doesn't necessarily mean you know uh, watering practices or even the species of turf that you're taking care of, uh, when to fertilize and when not to fertilize and what products might work. You run into any cultural problems with the turf. Having a knowledgeable professional is, they invest a lot of time in learning and mastering their professions. There's a lot of great companies out there maybe you haven't considered certification. So and if, if that's you, I would encourage you to do that. It's a great way to ensure credibility and build credibility. It's a good way to demonstrate your expertise in the profession. And I think it also raises the bar across the profession that we all sort of unite to become certified and to promote that among our profession. I encourage you to look into those programs. The Georgia Certified Plant Professional is much the same as the Landscape Professional. It's it's really tailored to the retail and growers and it covers some similar material on plant care, but it doesn't go uh, as much into the management practices in the field. It's more of the management practices in the nursery and in plant species. Both programs require extensive plant knowledge. There's a plant identification portion to the test that's uh, pretty rigorous. We have a plant list of 400 different plant species for the plant professional and uh, about 300 for the landscape professional. Or the primary difference in the length of those lists is the plant professionals must be familiar with interior plants as well. Both programs are outstanding way to build credibility and and also, if you're a new, say, a landscape professional who got into the business rather quickly and maybe you didn't have time to go take horticulture classes, certification is a great way to sharpen your skills and to maybe expand your skill set. I find that a lot of participants are very knowledgeable in one particular part of the industry. They're very knowledgeable in turf grass, but maybe they are not as knowledgeable in annuals and perennials and some of your trees and shrubs. That can be a good way to expand your skill sets. 
In the certification process, you're talking about people that might not be strong in one area. Is there a way for them to learn that? When you register for certification, we ship a 20-chapter study manual. You also gain access to some study resources on our website. We have a study site that provides some supplemental information. We are in the process of building some new materials that will be helpful with that. Now we're moving into sort of the video age. Now we do have excellent webinars that are archived that you can view. Certification does require continuing education for the landscape professional program. Uh, it's 15 continuing education hours every three years. It's not something that you, you can't manage. And if you attend some of these great industry events each year, you'll easily earn those credits to continue certification. You know, I wanted to bring this up that I'm honored to be interviewed by Craig, who is from our first graduating class of this program. And this, this program was started in the mid-90s. And I appreciate what Craig has done for the industry and the raising the bar and just the professionalism that he brings to what he does and the fact that he's even doing this podcast to share information with others just demonstrates the quality of Georgia Certified Landscape Professional Group and our graduates of this program. So thank you, Craig, for what you're doing. Thank you for that recognition. I appreciate that. If you'd like to learn more about uh, the Georgia Certified Landscape Professional or Plant Professional Program, please reach out to me at ghuber.com at uga.edu. You can find my contact information also on our website, which is ugaurbanag.com. And that's all one word, lowercase. If you have a question about your garden or landscape, I encourage you to reach out to your local county extension agent and get to know that person. They are a great resource. We have an agent locator on our UGA extension page. That website is extension.uga.edu. Greg Huber, thank you for sharing your insights and experiences on the Garden Question Podcast, Episode 9. You are magnificent. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Be well. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.